lot has been written about the millennial generation and uh, their connection or disconnection to the church. And one report a few years ago reveals something that uh, we've known about human behavior for centuries, really. And that is this. Millennials are more likely to stay in the church when they have significant, deep, authentic relationships there, especially with an older adult. Now that's kind of what we all want, right? It's kind of what we all need. We all want meaningful, life-giving relationships in which we can feel safe and avoid the experiences of being fearful and lonely Loneliness is rampant in our world. Did you know that in the United Kingdom, they have established a new governmental position called the Minister for Loneliness as a, a root cause for so much antisocial behavior. Very interesting. And we want, we want that community. We don't want to be lonely people. I probably don't need you to persuade you of that. All you have to do is just Put your phone away and observe people out in public. Speaking of phones, incidentally, when was the last time you went to a restaurant or stood in a line or even sat at a traffic light and observed someone looking at their phone? May I see your hands? Does that happen to you? Yeah? Okay. Anyone here ever look at your phone when driving? I mean, confession's good for the soul. Okay, so go ahead and raise your hand. Just keep your hand up. If you don't mind, we're going to take a photo and, uh, keep that on record. That's okay. Maybe you've become a bit preoccupied with your phone. Maybe you've put your hand in your pocket and remembered that your phone is there and you begin to wonder, oh, I, I wonder if anyone liked my Instagram post or, hey, I should look something up and check and see if the Kardashians are still obsessed with themselves. Yes, they are. And so we pull that phone out, and in fleeting moments, we try to connect with a virtual community, many of whom have little to no consequence on their daily lives. I wonder what would happen, brace yourselves, I wonder what would happen if we took a sabbatical from our phones just for a day. Someone suggested this, this to me one time, and I'll admit, it seemed a little far-fetched. I find myself quite dependent on that little device. But then again, maybe it's not so far-fetched. And here's why. Because the phone and social media, while they may have their benefits and good uses, are primarily about, not exclusively, but primarily about distant, more shallow relationships and certainly a lot of self-display. It's not real community. It's not what we deeply desire. What we love really as much as we love ourselves is what Jesus offers. That's what we really deeply want. Authentic community that looks us in the eye that embraces us, that remains. Authentic community is where there's honesty about the good and the bad in our lives. It's 
It's about confession and forgiveness and grace and faithfulness and loyalty and perseverance all the way to the end of life. That's what everyone really wants. And I'm not really going to try to sell you on the fact that we want this because even if you're not part of the church, I think you know that to be true about yourself. When we don't have community, we look for it. We look for it online or elsewhere. When we have community, but it's not very authentic or it's toxic, we look to get into a different sort of community. That's true for me, for you, for church people, for non-church people. And Jesus comes along. And he offers everyone, not simply a ticket to heaven when we die, That's not what the Christian faith is all about. But he offers us the joy of being in an authentic, deep family. With all the good and with all the mess. If you haven't read it lately, go back and look at the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5 to 7. What you'll discover is that Jesus is describing what his kingdom is like, and it's all about living in a new community, a new family. That's what God is doing in the world. He's recreating you and me to live well in that family, and for that family to bless the world. Now, look around you for a minute. When you do that, when you're aware of the people around you in this room right now, you'll see people you know, people maybe you don't know, people you know well, some not so well. You'll see people you respect, and there might even be someone in the room you don't respect. Isn't it amazing that God wants all of us in this family? This church is comprised of exactly the people who need to be here right now in order for God to get what He wants out of us and out of this community in which we find ourselves. Now, do you buy that? Well, I normally would buy that, but now that you made me notice who's in the room and you put it in those terms, I'm not so sure. Really, God? She's part of the plan? That grumpy old curmudgeon that's sitting in front of me is integral to the church? (laughs) From time to time, people will say to me, often after hearing what I do for a living as a pastor, they'll say, yes, well, I believe in God and all that stuff, but I don't care much for organized religion. It's sort of an honored mantra now. You know, when they say, oh, Jesus, he was great. The church, not so much. And then everyone around that person goes, oh, yes. I know you mean yes. It's almost respected. Jesus is cool. But not his friends. It's easy to make the mistake, I think. And I think that's what's lying behind this comment. It's easy to make the mistake that Jesus and the church are identical. A number of years ago, before I became pastor at a church, 
Uh, I read the job advertisement, job description of what they wanted. And it became immediately apparent to me that this church had advertised the post believing that the Son of God would apply for it. You ever read an advertisement for a pastoral position? There's no one in the world that can fill that position. Sadly, they got me. I just remember thinking, there, there isn't a person in all creation who can do this. And we went there anyway, in spite of all of those expectations. Sometimes we make the, the very serious mistake that Jesus and the church are identical. And so when the church disappoints us, hurts us, many of us turn our back on it. And we believe that it's okay to have a relationship with God but not as friends. I understand. If you're going to understand anything about God and anything about the church, you must believe and buy into these two truths that I want to convey to you tonight. Here's the first one. In the book of 1 Corinthians that was read earlier, the Apostle Paul says these words. Did you get it? Last verse. Now, you are the body of Christ. And each one of you. Do you notice how he said it sort of generally? And then he particularized it. You are the body of Christ. Because we could walk away from that and we go, Oh yeah, generally speaking, people are the body of Christ. And then he says, No, each one of you in this room, who proclaim His name and been baptized in His name. You are the body of Christ. You are part of it. Now, if you have ever bothered to read 1 Corinthians or know a little bit about that ancient church, you will find this statement utterly bewildering. For 11 or so chapters, Paul has been pounding these poor people because of, because of their foolish and sinful behavior. Stuff that would make Donald Trump blush, maybe. There was sexual immorality going on, and not only were they tolerating it in that local assembly, but they were celebrating the fact that they were so tolerant about all of that sin. They were squabbling, they were fighting, they were suing each other, and roasting the preacher on Sunday afternoons and evenings. So thankful none of us are like anybody in Corinth, right? Yet, in the middle of this holy tirade from the Apostle Paul, he says, Hey, listen up. You are the body of Christ. You bunch of messy losers are the body of Christ. What a shocking thing to say to people like them or people like us. For years, I've been so intrigued by what Paul did not say. He did not say, if all this stuff keeps up, some of you should probably split away and start your own church. He did not say, relocate to Ephesus. They're a bit more organized over there. 
did not say, does not say, maybe one day you will be good enough to be called the body of Christ. He says, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. Every one of you sinful, immoral, complaining, grumpy, curmudgeons are the body of Christ for the world. Now, Paul doesn't want him to stay that way. Okay? Which is why he's after them so forcefully. But nevertheless, that disaster of a church was the body of Christ in Corinth. Christianity is a flesh and blood religion. If you're looking for a religion that helps you escape this world, then I'd encourage you to try the New Age or something like it. But the Christian faith isn't vague or loosey-goosey like that. It is concrete. God comes close to us in Jesus. And now that He's ascended back to the Father, if you're going to get close to Jesus, you can't help but rub shoulders with His friends. The body of Christ. Jesus and the church are a package deal. Cyprian, one of the ancient fathers of the church, said you cannot have God as your father without Christ as your mother. John Calvin, the reformer, and those after him reinforced that as absolutely true. Jesus and the church are a package deal. Now, if you grew up in the church and you were on the more conservative, traditional, evangelical side of the ecclesiastical spectrum, you were familiar with the two great commandments. You remember the two great commandments? We heard them uh, as part of our confession this morning to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, to love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? So, you knew those two great commandments if you were on that conservative side, but the accent in your tradition, the very strong accent in that world, was on which one of those two? Loving God. Loving God. That's the one, yeah, I mean, loving your neighbor matters, but loving God is foundational, critical, whatever, all of that is central. Whereas, if you grew up on the more liberal side of the ecclesiastical spectrum of the church, loving neighbor was the more important of the two. Loving neighbor, for that side, is really the key way to identify as a Christian. Loving neighbor is everything, so much so that it tends to be obscured what it even means to love God. We're not really sure about that. Just a little bit. But when we rest on one to the detriment of the other, we honor and obey neither one of them. They are a photo finish. Have you ever seen the horse race? There was one a number of years ago. I should have looked it up. In the Kentucky Derby. I just remember it was some time where the judges were looking at the photo because the noses of the horses were so close they couldn't actually tell which one crossed the finish line first. That's what the two great commandments are in the Christian faith. 
They are so close that loving God and loving neighbor are absolutely intertwined, flesh and blood, real life. Jesus and his friends, the church, loving God, loving neighbor, are photo finish. You cannot have one without the other. They're so close, in fact, that Jesus refers to his church as his very body. You are. Did you hear that? It's a being verb. A state of being. It's not a simile. Or strictly a metaphor, even though it is that. It's an image, but not simply an image like any other image. It's a concrete reality, a state of being that holds true in this life and the next. Of course, there is mystery here, right? But we dare not think that mystery equals myth, or not real. Jesus possesses, stay with me here for a moment, his own glorified physical body, but he also possesses a body that is so united to his life that he's happy to say this in the Gospel of Matthew, when you have blessed the least of these, you have done what? Remember? The same to me. Now, do we feed the hungry, clothe the destitute, etc.? Are we doing that to them? Yes. But do we also, when we do that, at the same time, do those acts to Jesus? Apparently so. How? Because our lives are ontologically, that is in our being, our lives are united to His life in such a way, we don't lose our identity, we don't become some blob, but rather, His life animates, enlivens, preserves, establishes our lives so that we become who we were created to be, united to the very life of God as His body. How profound. What must that God be like to feel that way about us? That he would unite our being to his very being. He didn't need to. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in eternal joy and love, mutual love with one another. Why would he even bother? And, and that he would not simply call us his friends or acquaintances, but rather he calls us the ones he wants the world to look at in order to see Him. You want to find me, God says? Look at all of them. We dare not lose heart for the church. Because Christ has not. And He does not abandon His own body. It's a package deal. Second, until Jesus returns, to set this world right, there will always be a mixture of good and bad. Always. In the church. 
In our text for today, a farmer sows wheat in the field while he's away. An enemy, in an effort to render the crop useless, secretly sows weeds in the field. Upon discovery of this, the servants go to pull up the weeds, but the farmer, surprisingly, refuses to allow them to do that. Bizarre, don't you think? Those of you who cultivate and plant gardens, do you not make a diligent and concerted effort to keep weeds out of the garden? Of course you do. What sort of farmer would think it's a good idea to allow weeds to grow in a garden? It seems that this farmer is more interested in growing and cultivating than weeding out the bad grass or the chaff. And of course, we know the parable is about the kingdom of heaven and by consequence, the church. So Jesus is more interested in growing the good wheat than he is about kicking anybody out, about getting rid of the dead weight. Oh, he knows who belongs to him and who doesn't. But if the servants, his disciples, his followers, try to make church the place where only the perfectly spiritual people are allowed to remain, then we risk doing great, great harm to the body of Christ. And so we just accept the fact that in the church there will always be a mixture of good and bad, success and failure. Now, I know some of us think it's mostly bad and failure. I know you've been hurt. I'm sad for you. If I might pull a little bit of Pauline language from another passage, for all that has bothered you and hurt you at the church, I more so. I felt it deeply, deeper, maybe. I felt that pain. I don't dispute the failures of the church. They are quickly and easily identified by those inside and especially by those outside. And yet, it's been through this flawed and marginalized institution that God has changed the world. Isn't that amazing to think about? Centuries ago, it was the fathers of the church at one of the great councils who decreed that wherever there was a cathedral built, there should also be a place for caring for the sick and the poor. And so began the movement to build and run hospitals. See, a lot of people think that the fathers were just theologians who wanted to fight and argue about who was right and who was wrong. And while the church has always been concerned about truth, they've also always put the love of Christ into action. Always, from the beginning. Some of you know the story of Father Damien in Hawaii, the Belgian priest who served the lepers there in the 19th century. He used to tell them, almost on a daily basis. God loves you lepers. And one day he stood up in front of them and he said, God loves us lepers. And he died with them. Having nursed them through the most horrific of diseases and shared with them the love of Christ and gave them his life. It's a church. 
In the ancient world, slavery was the norm. Had little to do with race. Anyone could end up in slavery. And from the very beginning, Christians pushed against this institution. In the 18th century, God called John Newton a man who could only be called the dregs of society to be a Christian. In fact, he would become a pastor in England, and he would write that hymn, Amazing Grace. One day, a young politician by the name of Wilberforce, who had become a Christian, came to Newton for advice. And Newton said, stay in Parliament and devote your life to the abolition of slavery. And the law abolishing slavery that Wilberforce, the Christian, had long fought for, finally passed in Parliament a month after he died. And these sorts of things are still happening today. Christians lead the way in caring for the poor and needy, even in our city. Not so long ago, the BBC produced a documentary about homelessness for young people under the age of 25 in Bristol, England. And one young man was interviewed and he said, quote, Ask anyone in any city, it's the Christians who help you. We hear a single bell ringing in shopping areas during Christmas reminding us that the Salvation Army is still at war against poverty and hunger. We're familiar with the Red Cross, World Vision, Compassion International, the YMCA, Samaritan's Purse, Prison Fellowship. We know names like David Livingston, William Carey, and Jim Elliott, who gave their lives for those who had never heard the good news of Jesus. We know about Jeff and Abby Nelson and in-town mission partners who could make a very comfortable living here amongst family and friends. But they have followed God's call to be the body of Christ in a place where nobody knew them. This flawed, weak, mistake-filled, sinful, weed, weedy church is what God has used to change the world. And he's still doing it. How can you explain such a thing? It's God's field. He's the farmer. Yes, we might be the wheat, but he is the farmer. It's sure not because we're clever enough to pull it off. We are not. God meets us in the risen Lord. He comes to take up residence in and unite himself to this flawed, weak, fumbling church. So now we can say with all humility and full confidence, you are the body of Christ. You are the hope of the world with shoes on. 